I'm continuing our series this summer in the Psalms, Summer in the Psalms it's called, and some of you will know more about the book of Psalms than others. There's 150 different Psalms in the Bible, and so we've been looking at a number of different ones of them during the summer. And when I started this series, I talked about what are they? And I think the easiest way of describing the Psalms is that they're honest prayers. And I even went one step further and said that they're brutally honest prayers, because they're really real, that they get to the heart of things. I think sometimes you can hear people pray, and you sit there and you think, is that really what's going on in your soul? But when we look at the Psalms, we see David and other contributors, it's just their hearts out there. It's real, it's authentic, and and many times beautiful as well. Sometimes people say to me, how do I pray? And I think the easiest answer to that is to start with the Lord's Prayer. But then I would say, turn to the book of Psalms, look at the book of Psalms, and just begin to work your way through them. Linda, who spoke last week, talked about Psalm 23, which is the most beautiful psalm. It's a psalm of reassurance. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. And she just unpacked that psalm absolutely wonderfully. But why do we love that psalm? We love that psalm because it's there for us. And many of you here will have remembered that psalm and taken it into your hearts and your souls. And there'll be times when life's really difficult and you kind of reflect back on those words. And having memorized scripture, you sit there and you're like, the Lord's my shepherd and he makes me lie down in pastures green. You, You know, you take those words and you apply them into your life. And that's why the psalms are so wonderful. This morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 63. So if you've got your Bibles and you just want to grab them, if not, it's going to come up on the screen behind me. And this psalm is a psalm of worship and adoration. I think the word that I'd love you to remember from today is adoration. And you might be sitting there going, what is adoration? And I think that to adore is to love. To to adore is to worship. To adore is to hold something in its primary place. It's to gaze upon. It's to look upon. And at the heart of this psalm, we see David, and he's adoring the Lord. And so we're just gonna, I'm just going to read it. And I think it's absolutely beautiful. And it says this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Again and again throughout the scriptures, we have this analogy of thirst. As the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul thirsts after you. Again and again, we see this moment. And David here is in the desert. And so he would have understood thirst, deep thirst. And thirst, thirst is such a, it's a vivid and a powerful picture. My soul thirsts for you. There's almost this, this longing in there. And it's, and it's painful at times. The, the heading of this psalm is a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. 
And in order to understand what this psalm reveals about worship and adoration, we really have to, got to, we've got to dig into it a bit to see the context, to, uh, to understand at what point David's writing this. And the, ver- the, the psalm itself gives us a few hints. Verse 9 says, those who seek my life. You know, those last three verses kind of switch a bit, don't they? We've got the first eight verses and then 9, 10, and 11. Like, whoa, there's a bit of a shift going on here. But David's on the run. He's on the run at this point. And then in verse 11, it says, but the king will rejoice in God. So David's on the run, but he is at this point the king. And so as we kind of work it out, when was he on the run in his life in the wilderness? The answer is when his son, in some ways his favorite son, the son he loved most, turned on him and betrayed him. His name was Absalom. And do you know what? It's a desperately tragic story. But Absalom took the throne, he deposed him, and he betrayed him, and David had to flee for his life. And he'd lost, in a sense, his family, he'd lost his kingdom, he'd lost his people. And now he was on the run with just a few of his close um, followers, and he's about to lose his life. David had everything, and then it's all completely stripped away. That's the situation. And then we have to go even a little bit deeper if we're going to understand something about how David would have felt as he's writing this. Because the roots of this psalm go back years further. Before this, when David fell in lust with a married woman, Bathsheba, and he had an affair with her, and then he had her husband, Uriah, killed, taken to the front line, and he was killed. And of, as always, these things, these things seem to come out. And, and it did. And it it came out that David had done this when Nathan the prophet confronts him. And and David repents, and he was forgiven by the Lord. But Nathan the prophet came to him and he said, yes, yes, you are forgiven, you're completely forgiven, but the sword will never depart from your house. The sword will never depart from your house. He was saying, God has forgiven you, but I want you to know that you have sown seeds into your family, that you have permanently poisoned your family by sowing seeds of bitterness, seeds of jealousy, and seeds of distrust, and the sword will never depart from your house. So when David is out in the wilderness, and he's on the run, and he's lost absolutely everything, this is a crushed man that we're looking at. He has the knowledge that the reason that he's lost everything is because it's his fault. I mean, can you imagine how crushing that is? He's lost his kingdom. He's lost his people. He's lost his family. And he's about to lose his life. And he's got to live with the the fact that it's because he's failed as a king that he's abused his power and that he's failed as a father. It's his son that turns on him. So he's out in the wilderness and he's about to die and he's been hunted down largely because of his own mistakes. And only if you understand that well, you begin to understand the significance of this psalm. Because without that, you read this and you're like, what a lovely psalm, apart from the last three verses. But when you suddenly understand the the desperation of David's context, you can look at it and go, oh, wow, that means something completely different. He's yearning, he's thirsting, he's dying. And under circumstances that should completely level you and break you, how was he able to worship and adore God so beautifully and so humbly and so sweetly in this moment that these words are overflowing and we sit there, oh God, my God, earnestly I seek you. How was he able to face this? How was he able to get that kind of poise, that power? And the answer at the heart of it is adoration. There's nothing else happening to him except he goes into the sanctuary 
What is a sanctuary? It's like a safe place. He goes into the sanctuary and he hungers and he thirsts for God and he beholds his power and he beholds his glory and he begins to experience his power and his glory and he's satisfied with it. It kind of builds to this moment in verse five and there's just this satisfaction that overflows. He just asks for God. He just seeks for God. Adoration has given him the power to face something that would crush anybody else. Worship and adoration are the bedrock of David's soul. He is sustained and satisfied by focusing on the Lord. He's not looking at himself because what happens, it would, it would be so easy of David to be completely pitying of himself in this moment. Can you imagine? It's like, God, and there are other times when he gets very angry, but God, how could you have let this happen? But instead what he chooses to do in this moment is he, is he turns to focus upwards and he says, my hope's in you. His posture is upwards. And if it can help David handle these circumstances, I think that it can help us handle ours, whatever the circumstances are that we're going through. So this is a psalm of hope for those that are in a desperate place. For others of you, though, you're here and you're not in a desperate place. Do you know what? You could be in a good place. You could just be in a numb place. So many different emotions going on. But for others of you, you'll become aware of this as you read this psalm that there is very little adoration of the Lord going on in your soul. And I don't say that in a way to be condemning, but as you look at the fierceness of the way that David, the passion that David talks about in this, what it does is it kind of highlights your heart and you sit there and go, oh wow, I'm not in that place. There is not that fierceness and that passion after the Lord's glory in me. Your worship might be directed in so many different directions, but ultimately it's not upwards towards the Lord because as human beings, we were created to worship. Everybody worships. It just depends what it is that we're worshiping. And your, your view of yourself and the world is totally formed through and totally controlled by what you worship. So what does your heart yearn for and thirst for? As you talk about this, David's heart is yearning and thirsting for the Lord. That's the analogy that we're given. But as you st stop and you think about your own situation, what is it that your heart is yearning and thirsting for? Because that, whatever it is that that is, that is what you're worshipping. What's the beauty of your life? We're all worshipping. The only way you can fundamentally change anything is to change what you worship, where your affection goes, where your gaze is focused upon. Everybody's worshipping something, and it's where our identity comes from. And how do we know that? Because whenever we lose the thing that we worship is when we are utterly crushed. So on one hand, you could look at David's situation He's lost all of these things. He's lost his family. He's lost his kingship in this moment. He's lost his son. He should be crushed. But yet his hope is in something higher. And I'm not saying that David wasn't kind of beaten up and, and to an extent on his knees. But I, I'm saying when we see David, what we see is this. He's back to the Lord. He's adoring of the Lord in the midst of this circumstance. Fortunately, as we go through this psalm, David gives us a wonderful breakdown of what he does in order to finally get to the place where his soul is satisfied. Or even another analogy might be that his soul is feasted, as in the richest of food. That's what he talks about. And there are four parts that I, I briefly want to mention, and I'm going to go through this quite fast. It could have been a much longer talk, but we're slightly shorter in the summer. So if I talk quickly, it's because I've got a lot to get in. I don't know if any of you have ever listened to a podcast on double time. That's what we're going to do this morning. So the four things that I want to look at is this. 
to remember, to value, to express, and then to satisfy. And so I'll break those down. The first one is this, to remember. Verse six, I love this verse. It says, on my bed, I remember you. And I think of you through the watches of the night. What are the watches of the night? The watches of night will be the moments when you cannot sleep. They're the moments when you're in bed and if you're under great pressure or stress in your life, you will have moments that you wake up in the middle of the night and you cannot get back to sleep. You're like, bang, and you're in. So where is it that our mind goes in the watches of the night? What is it that we're thinking about? When we go to bed, before we go to sleep, when we wake up in the morning, what is the first thought in our minds? Whatever it is. But what we know from David is that in this moment, the Lord filled his mind. You also can see this in verses two and three where he says, I've seen your power. I've seen your glory. I've seen your love. And what he's saying is, I remember when your power saved me. I remember when I saw your glory. I remember when I experienced your love. What he's doing in this moment is that he's going back to the moments in which he's deeply experienced the Lord. He's like, I've seen your power. I've seen what you've done. I've seen how you've changed my life. And so that is the first place in adoration that we have to go, is that we've got to go back to remember what the Lord's done. Because sometimes the circumstance in which we're in can seem so overwhelming that we can't do anything. So when do we go back and remember? We go back and remember in the watches of the night, when we're lying on our bed, in those moments, and we begin to reflect on the beauty of the Lord, how incredible he is. We open up the Psalms. I'm remembering what you've done. And in this, it's really interesting. He's not just saying, oh God, you're great. He's breaking it down. And the best example of this is in the wonderful Shakespearean sonnet. I am a brilliant poet myself. And just imagine me um, quoting Shakespeare to Jen. No, we've never done that actually. But, um, but, the, but the lover says this, and it's really amazing. He says, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. So you, you can imagine two lovers talking. And let's say the man says to the woman this, I love you. What does she say? Why? I've had that experience before when, with Jen sometimes. I just, I, I love you. And she's like, what, what is it that you love? Okay. <laughs> You're asking me to be a little bit more explicit right now. I just love you. You're amazing. But she would like it broken down. I mean, it's great to say I love you, but wouldn't it be better if I found out why you love me? Oh, because you're great. You're just so great. In what ways? So if he finally says, like the sonnet writer, I have 35 ways that you're great, 35 things that I love about you. And if he starts to go through them, his heart and your heart will begin to expand and expand and expand. Because in that moment, it's not just this, I love you. It's, I love this about you. I love the way that you've done this. And this is the same as what's happening in adoration with what David's doing in the beginning of this. He doesn't just say you're great, he breaks it down. So that's the first thing that you do in praising God. You think about the things that he's done. You think out the specific ways. That's one of the amazing things about journaling. I don't know whether any of you, I know a number of you journal. But what's amazing is that it makes you stop and remember because you have to go back and reflect. The danger in our life is that we just don't reflect. We just move on to the next thing. But actually when we sit down and we begin to say, okay, God, in what ways have I seen you move today? 
we're forced to reflect on beginning to see the fingerprints of God. As we begin to do that, we begin to become grateful for what the Lord's done. And so it begins this circle. So almost remembering is the beginning of this circle of adoration that we go into. So that's the first one. Then secondly, we've got to value. And it's interesting in verse three, it says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. He'd seen the glory, he'd seen the power, and he'd seen the love. And then he goes on to say it's better than life. When he uses the word better, he's moving from just kind of naming the glories to really appraising and valuing the glories. So he's not just saying you're this and this and this, but he's starting to say, now if this is true, why do I need this? So if you're strong, why am I afraid? If you're loving, why am I guilty? If you're merciful, why do I feel bad about myself? So what he's doing is he's moving away from just naming God's qualities and he's starting to think, okay, what's the value of these things? I have these things in God, but if this is true, what does that mean? Because you're my help in verse seven, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The old word for worship, the English word worship, originally came from the word worth-ship. So what is worth-ship? It's seeing what God is worth and then giving him what he's worth. So that's why over and over again in the Psalms, it doesn't just say, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. It doesn't stop there, does it? This is what um, Rachel spoke on two weeks ago. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light and my salvation. What shall I fear? Do you see, it's almost like you talk about a quality of God and then suddenly out of it comes this, well, why am I afraid? Why am I living like this? Why am I doing this? If this is the truth, why am, why am I behaving like this? And it, and it confronts us in that moment. And that's the value. The adoration doesn't just say you're strong. It says, if you're strong, then why am I scared? If you're wise, then why am I mad at what's going on in my life? If you're merciful, why do I feel guilty? You're valuing it. So that's the second thing. Firstly, it's to remember, remember. Secondly, it's to value. And then thirdly, it's to express. Notice this isn't all something just internal going on here. Verse four says this, in your name I will lift up my hands. In your name I will lift up my hands. And verse five says, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Lifting up hands was praying, but probably praying in public. This was the way that it was done in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the synagogue. People would stand and they would raise hands together to offer up their petitions to the Lord. Worship is about what God is worth, not what we feel able to give. I'm going to say that again. Worship is about what God is worth, not we, what we feel able to give. So I wonder when you came in here today and we started singing worship, what was going on in you? Because sometimes it doesn't come naturally. Sometimes we, we just walk in and we're in a stinker. Do you know what I mean? You, you're just like, man alive, I'm here and they're singing worship songs. <laughs> These Christians. Why have they got their hands in the air? Not that you're judging them, but... <laughs> you're judging them. But you walk into church or small group or whatever gathering it is and you're like, God, I'm just not in the mood today. I just don't feel like it. So it could be self-pity. It could be any number of things. It could be anger, the life's unfair. All the people that you know are just deeply annoying in that moment. But sometimes our souls feel weak. 
and we need to wake them. I think there's something amazing that happens when we walk in in that kind of mood and that state of mind where we're just like, I'm, you know, you're going to stick your hands in your pockets and you're like, whatever comes, the hands are not going into the air this morning. And there's something very profound when you feel like that to just get on your knees because you don't feel like it. And what begins to happen in that moment is God begins to break something in you. And you choose to worship despite of. And then what happens as you worship is your whole perspective begins to shift. And what starts as you becomes him. This is where adoration begins to come. So you remember, you begin to value and you begin to remember and it's like, God, because you're like this, I'm going to do this. And then what happens is this, the expression It's like the expression, it's the overflow. It's like, God, you are worthy of everything. And then we come into part four, which is the final bit, which is to satisfy. You move from those things. My soul, verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of food. I love rich food. I was just sitting there as I was reading this thinking, man, I really love rich food. Some people love healthy food. My love, my, my love, my love, Jen. Um, I'm going to try that as a new title. Hello, my, my lovely. No, let's just move on. Some people love healthy food. I love rich food. I love cream. I love butter. And I love carbs. Basically, if it is any way bad for you, I just love it. And... So my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. I can get on board with that verse. I love John Piper's quote when he says this, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So in some senses, if we want to glorify God, we want to get to the point of satisfaction where we can taste and see that the Lord is good, that we're that we get there. So Christians have come to understand through an experience of grace that it's God himself, that it's God's holiness, it's God's love, it's God's wisdom, it's God's power, it's God's might, it's God himself you want. You're like, God, you're the best thing. If you do these first three things which are kind of under your control, to remember, to value, and to express, then what begins to happen, it's almost like that is building an altar as you put those things together. And then the last one is the work of the Holy Spirit that comes in. And then the fire comes down on the altar and it begins to ignite this circle of adoration. David really finds the verse in key three, sorry, the key in verse three. He says, the thing that really takes him over the top, that he's looking at the power and he's looking at the glory. What's the thing he decides is better than life? Your love, your love is better than life. It's a very hard word to translate. In the old translations, it's called steadfast love or loving kindness. And it's a word that really means loyal love. It means his strong love. It means his immovable love. It means his unconditional love. It actually means the love that he gives to us regardless of what the danger is. That's literally what it means. Love that's willing to put itself into danger. Love that will stay there no matter what. Love that will be unmovable no matter what it faces. David says, I know God has promised to love me no matter what. And that is the thing that really gets his adoration going. Because he's like, even when I'm broken and I'm a mess, I know. And he's standing there and I was like, I know that the Lord loves me. 
I know that he'd fight for me. I know that he's fought for me. I'm going to finish with this. I've been thinking about a song this week, um, and it's by somebody called United Pursuit. And it says these words, and I want you to think about them for yourself as it finishes. It says, I don't want to ride on someone else's passion, somebody else's passion. I don't want to find that I'm just dry bones. I want to burn with unquenchable fire. Deep down inside, see it coming alive. And then it goes on in the chorus and it says this, help me find my own flame. Help me find my own fire. I want the real thing. I want your burning desire. And I think at the heart of what I'm trying to say this morning is this isn't about somebody else. This just isn't, this is about David's affection. But what is it for us? I know that I sing those words and it's like, I don't want to ride on someone else's passion. I don't want to stand next to somebody else that's kind of in love with the Lord. I want to be in love with the Lord. I want to adore the Lord. I want him to feel the heat of my passion for him. I want to burn with unquenchable fire. I want to see it overflow. So I think there's a challenge there for each one of us. So why don't we stand and we'll just minister.